Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Thursday. Hopefully you guys are getting ready for the weekend, spending time with your family, friends, watching tennis along the way. There's a little bit of tennis news that we can get into for today. We can obviously get into Andy Murray playing at the Queen's Club Championship as well as playing against Benoit Pair yesterday that happened on Tuesday. We can also discuss Ivashka and Federer at the Hall Open. I'm pretty sure that happened on a Monday. Uh, we can also discuss Andre Rublev and Ka- Karen Kachanov uh, at the Hall Open where Rublev was able to win in straight sets. We can discuss Roland Garros blocking J.J. Watt's tweet on tennis footage. And in terms of news outside of the tennis world, we can obviously discuss Kevin Hart's comments on cancel culture as well as Jon Stewart's lab leak comments and just how badass they they were. But I think where we'll start off for today will be somewhat of an exercise. So if you guys didn't watch the quarterfinal of the French Open, Daniil Medvedev lost to Stefano Tsitsipas in straight sets. And this will be like sort of a brain teaser and sort of like a thought exercise here where I really have, you know, serious questions about Daniil Medvedev as he heads into the grass season and just as he progresses in his tennis career in general. And my main overall question is, will Daniil Medvedev ever win the French Open? Right, because, and this is a very important topic to at least discuss and to like at least deliberate further because Daniil Medvedev is a great tennis player. I mean, he's ranked pretty highly. I mean, he was a second ranked tennis player heading into the French Open, and more often than not, he has his he plays very inconsistent when he's on clay. Right, I mean, he lost to Stefano Tsitsipas in the quarterfinal. Uh, and again, Stefano Tsitsipas was a very accomplished tennis player. I mean, he won Monte Carlo, won the line open, and lost to Nadal at the Bar- Barcelona Open final. So he's no joke. I mean, obviously, Stefano Tsitsipas is, as of this moment, one of the better tennis players within that next gen. I mean, previously, he lost to the 2020 French Open to Fusovic. And, you know, this clay season, Daniil Medvedev, was somewhat okay. I mean, he wasn't that great. I don't think he really warranted that second rank of that French Open. I mean, he lost to the at, to Christian Garin at the round of 16 at the Madrid Open and also at the round of 32 to Karatsev. I'm pretty sure that was at the Italian Open. So again, I mean, while his game is better suited for clay and hard courts, uh, I, don't th- I, I do think that there should be certain questions heading into the grass season, and more importantly, just within this ATP season with Daniil Medvedev, right? I mean, if you look at the Hall Open, I mean, it's a tennis tournament that's currently happening. Uh, again, and he played against John Leonard Struff and lost in straight sets to John Leonard Struff 6-7, 3-6. So yeah, I mean, I do have my reservations with Daniil Medvedev, not only with this grass season in particular, but above all, just if he can win the French Open, you know, I mean, he hasn't really had the best year so far on clay, and he hasn't really had the best year so far on grass as it is. So, you know, I I think he can do it, right? I want to be honest with you. Can Daniil Medvedev ever win the French Open? Yes, I do think so. Uh, but if, and this is a very big if, if his mind is locked in to play, 
I think that's a very important detail that not many people often really figure out when it comes to tennis players. If he's if he's able to be explosive at the baseline, if he's able to sort of expose his opponent's unforced errors and the miscalculations of his opponent, then I think he can, he can have a fair and legitimate shot at being successful on clay. You know, so I mean, I, I think those are sort of the the ways to sort of go about this. You know, I mean, obviously, Stevanil Medvedev is one of the better players within his next within the next gen. But when you watch that match against John Leonard's truth, and when you watch when you see that underhand serve against Stefano Tsitsipas, while I, I enjoyed it, it was a cause of concern since it kind of proved that he knew he would lose and that he didn't really give a fair shot or actually any shot whatsoever when he gave that underhand serve because it was a guilt of admission that he knew he was going to lose. So, I mean, things like that sort of make you question his durability within the French Open, and hopefully it doesn't ever oscillate between him, you know, being on the verge of winning versus him losing the first round like he did to Fusovic uh, last year in the French Open. So hopefully going on, going further down the road we're able to see Daniil Medvedev play some of the best tennis ever and hopefully he's able to do it on on the hard court that we've seen in the Australian Open but more more specifically on clay as well and I think that should be something that within his team that he should work on is being more consistent and just sticking with what he's always been doing the best which is playing well with being near the baseline and you know focusing and utilizing his opponents on forced errors. I know I kind of ran in circles that time uh, at the end, but I, I do agree with what, what I was... I, I do uh, fully back up what I'm saying when it comes to Daniel Medvedev on that surface because when I watch him on grass, I'm like, whoo! Uh, that's not... Uh, that's not good. I, I like... If I'm, you know, predicting what I... If I'm predicting as to what will happen in Wimbledon. Uh, Daniel Medvedev winning Wimbledon is not my biggest prediction. It, it, I don't think it should be anybody's prediction because obviously those who do well on clay have a really hard time playing well on grass. I mean, to Rafa Nadal's 13 Roland Garros titles, there's always his two Wimbledon titles. For Roger Federer's six or seven Wimbledon titles, there's always that one French Open title that he won against Robin Soderling. You know, so it's it's those who do well on clay often do pretty bad on grass and vice versa. It's no different when it comes to grass and clay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when it comes to grass, I, I don't know my predictions for Wimbledon. I'm a li- that's a little too far. It's like a month away. I still have to watch the Queen's Club Championships the hall open and yeah I, I think that's that's what people should be focusing on as of this moment in time um it's a little too far away to predict what's going to happen in wimbledon but you should obviously uh draw out daniel medvedev winning wimbledon because i i just don't see it uh i i even think daniel medvedev would be honest with himself and say i don't i don't even think he believes that he can win wimbledon so yeah i i think that's something that I just wanted to get into just a fun brain exercise as to the future, even though the future may be a year away. So, all right. Anyways, uh, let's get into 
Roland Garros blocking J.J. Watt's tweet on tennis footage. All right. So last Sunday, this is kind of interesting to see. J.J. Uh, Watt tried to send a video of a particular French Open clip that he really liked. I'm pretty sure it was Novak Djokovic making some type of explosive play that he might have liked and wanted to share with his millions of followers. Um, but Roland Garros blocked his tweet and blocked his video for copyright. And, you know, this gets into, like, what I believe should be the main mission of any tennis federation or any sports league is that they should warrant and have a community. They should want people tweeting about the French Open so that it exposes more people to the sport. And when you block a J.J. Watt from tweeting certain footage, how does that transcend the sport in any way possible? Shouldn't you want to build a community and actually have people send out videos that they enjoy about particular points they enjoyed or particular matches that they felt were, you know, very sort of actually coerced them into actually tweeting about it? Shouldn't you at least have individuals, you know, sustain some type of uh, some type of a community? I mean, I I keep saying community, but it is a community. I mean, when you're tweeting with your fans and when when you're with your followers and when they comment on your videos and when they have a dialogue and actually have conversations about certain players and matches and uh, certain sequences within building up a tennis point. I mean, that's building a community within your sport. And you should have that. You should allow that. You should never negate it. You know, it's, I mean, that's Internet 101. I mean, you should allow people to express different dialogue about what they enjoy about a particular sport. You know, that's how you spread the game. So I don't really see where Roland Garros is coming from when they, when they block footage f- from notable people. I mean, reg- I mean, regardless of what, what you may, may feel about J.J. Watt, not only is he a likable dude, but also he's a football player with millions of followers and with fans who may not view tennis as a sport. So it's important for him to at least tweet about it and sort of normalize tennis to his football fans because guess what? NBC not only carries the French Open, but they carry Sunday night football. And that allows that Sunday night football crowd that may be interested in J.J. Watt to then watch the French Open that can also be on NBC or to watch other subsequent tennis matches with other providers that may also carry football as well. So it just doesn't really make sense on a business part that they would block footage. Again, it's social media. I mean, it's bound to be up somewhere. You know, you can't just redirect everybody to Roland Garros' YouTube account to watch tennis. You should at least have people, you know, put out their own footage and and sort of create something that can be natural. You know, it just doesn't make any sense on a business part why they would do this. Um, and, I, and rightfully so, I see people on uh, social media, especially Twitter, uh, going after Roland Garros for doing this because I don't know how this can promote the sport in any way possible. I mean, when I talk about tennis, besides my latest clip on Novak Djokovic, go watch it if you haven't. If you're if you're listening on the podcast, it, it title, it's titled on my podcast podcast clips channel. Uh, know how Novak Djokovic second Roland Garros title uh, proves he's the go. Go watch it if you haven't. It's like one of my most viewed clips on my clip channel um, at like 200 or something. Uh, but who's keeping track, you know? Uh, but that's like... You know, I think it's important to at least have individuals comment on your videos and to have people being interested in the product 
especially those who have never really watched tennis since the Agassi Sampras years. And I'm speaking particularly particularly through an American mindset. You know, when I when I talk about your average football fan, what I mean is like your average football fan who's only interested if an American is playing the sport. Your average football fan that's only interested when they see a brash individual like Nick Kyrgios playing the sport. You know, that's the individual that I'm talking about when I when I'm discussing those who are interested in watching the sport of tennis. So yeah, I mean I I, I don't understand why um why I say <laughs> again I, I I truly do not understand where ten, uh, Roland Garros is coming from when when it comes to them blocking the tweet of JJ Watt I mean I, I truly don't I mean JJ Watt is a humanitarian he helped people during the hurricane that happened in Texas I mean this man is nothing but a great individual and to see them block his tweet, for some dumb reason, such as copyright, it, it doesn't sit well with me, like at all. <laughs> so um, hopefully they fix it. I mean, because they really want the sport to grow. If they don't, if they don't want to see their ratings go down to a pulp, if they don't, if they don't just want to have tennis purists watching the sport or tennis journalists watching the sport, uh, then it's important for them to at least discuss this and at least allow people to tweet out certain clips that they enjoyed. You know, what if it's a Roger Federer clip, you know, him hitting a tweener shot for a winner, allow them to tweet it. You know, if, if it's Novak Djokovic, you know, going for a drop shot for a winner that uh, ends up winning the set, let people tweet about it. If it's Nick Kyrgios having an underhand serve against Nadal, go tweet about it. If it's Neil Medvedev on his final point, uh, his break point or, you know, losing a break point or go- going down a break point to Stefano Tsitsipas as Stefano Tsitsipas goes to the semifinal as Daniil Medvedev hits an underhand serve, go for it. You know, allow, allow people to tweet about these things and allow people to have footage uh, related to those winners and to those points. You know, it does not make sense whatsoever to block it. You know, I mean... It, because at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's going to take away from your earnings. It's going to take away from your viewers. And as we all know, attention is the biggest form of currency. So when you have people tweeting about it, it just brings more attention to your product. You know. So yeah, I mean that's just my overall opinions on JJ Watt. You know, being blocked by the Roland Garros on tweeting out tennis footage. I I think it's pretty bad. Overall, and it does not help the sport whatsoever. All right, let's get into on-the-court tennis news. All right, let's segue into the grass season. We're starting the grass season. I'm really pumped, really excited for it. And overall, it's one of my favorite seasons. I say that about every season, but I really mean this when it comes to this season. The grass season is obviously one of my favorite. Uh, you have Andre Rublev versus Karan Kachanov. Rublev beats Kachanov 6-3, 7-6, 7-5 was the tiebreaker. And I'll just be honest with you. I, like, I, I had a huge boner uh, for Rublev earlier in this podcast. I drink the Kool-Aid after his Rotterdam win, uh, mainly because it was like one of, one of my, one of the only, like it was one of the few tennis matches that was happening during the coronavirus pandemic where I was like really interested and enthralled, you know, seeing his baseline play, seeing his backhands, you know, seeing him going cross court and down the line uh, against his opponent. It was just amazing to watch, um, especially in the final. And overall, ever since his win at Rotterdam, 
it's sort of been this precipitous drop-off that I really haven't seen from other players uh, besides Hubert Harkoch, but I, I won't get into Hubert Harkoch. This podcast, maybe some other podcasts, will discuss him. Uh, but when it comes to you know a drop-off, when I see Andre Rublev, it, it's sort of been steadying. He's sort of been playing okay. I'm not going to say it's been like horrible for Andre Rublev, but he hasn't been the same player that he was at the Rotterdam Open. You know, I mean, he lost to the quarterfinal to Sonego at the Italian Open. He lost to the round of 16 at the Madrid Open to John Isner. Uh, he lost to the quarterfinal to Sitsipas at Monte Carlo. And he lost to round one, I'm pretty sure, at the, at the French Open. And that I discussed two or three podcast episodes ago. So go watch it on my YouTube or go watch it on any podcast feed if you can. Um, but overall, I mean, he was trailing against Kachanov 5-6 in that second set. But it never felt like he would lose. I mean, going back to that match at the Hall Open, it never felt like he would lose against Kachanov. And, you know, Kachanov at one point lost a point uh, at a pretty easy volley that I thought he could have gotten in uh, and actually got a code violation because he hit the tennis ball into the tennis stands, uh, which if that was an audience, like, he's, he's, he's thankful he's not, like, he didn't get any fines for it. Like if there were, if there was audience if there were audience members within the stands when he hit that ball into the stands, best belief he would have gotten a fine. I mean, I would have fined him like an exorbitant amount of money. Maybe like not like six figures, but like well within the tennis realm. You know, so I mean yeah, I mean, overall, it was a good match by Andre Rublev. He he beat Avashka pretty decidedly in, in that first set. I mean, he was just great on the baseline. Uh, great on serves as well. And overall, I, I really enjoy watching Andre Rublev play because I do believe that he is like a dude that you should watch out for. You know, at one point, I said he was a little bit better than Daniil Medvedev. I don't know about that now. <laughs> like, I really don't. I, I don't know. Again, I was drinking the Andre Rublev Kool-Aid. Like... I was like, if I had to like draw it up to something or if I had to compare it to something, it would be like Joe Rogan's love for Ronda Rousey, right? Like back in 2015, 2016, Joe Rogan had the hugest like hard on for Ronda Rousey. And it kind of proved that while she was one of the better UFC fighters, female MMA fighters, uh, he's no, she's no Valentina Shevchenko. She's no Amanda Nunez. Uh, and that's sort of how I felt about Andre Rublev. Like, my love for Andre Rublev was based off of nothing, but I knew that he was actually a pretty good opponent. And more importantly, he was fairly consistent on the baseline and could be a pretty good counterpuncher, but also pretty aggressive when need be. And I, I say this with all love in my heart for not only Andre Rublev, but for Joe Rogan as well. Uh, it, it's sort of. For me, I sort of viewed Andre Rublev in the same realm as Rogan with Ruth Ronda Rousey. Um, but overall, you know, he had a pretty good match against Kochanov, and it really shined through. You know, I mean, it didn't seem like he was unwavered at any point. You know, it felt like he was very low when it came to unforced errors and forcing his opponent to uh, actually hit it outside and actually shank it uh, outside of the uh, out of the court. So, I mean, overall, I thought it was a pretty good win for Andre Rublev. I think he's playing today, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but overall, good win on Andre Rublev's part. Uh, hopefully, we're able to see a bounce back because that clay season could have been better. Um, you know, hopefully, we're able to see him succeed uh, on the grass season when Wimbledon arrives within a month or so. 
and um yeah hopefully hopefully we're able to see more of rublev as the rounds go on not only within the hall open but also within the majors grand slams as well so that's where i'll lead uh end it off with andre rublev uh when it comes to uh his performance on on the grass Anyways, let's get into Ivia Ivashka versus Ia Ivashka versus Roger Federer. So, Federer, Roger Federer beat Ivashka 7-6, 7-5. And if you haven't heard, uh, when he beat tennis, Dennis Koffer, I think, not Tennis Angren, Dennis Koffer, uh, he had an interview with Tennis Channel where he said that he's focusing on grass and... As a result, he actually pulled out of the French Open uh, to focus on Wimbledon and to focus on the grass season. And it seems like he's focusing on well. I mean, he beat Ivashka in straight sets, 7-6, seven, 7-5. Seven, uh, you know, going into their statistics that I pulled up, uh, I didn't really watch the match because I was filming a podcast. Uh, but I did watch the highlights of it. And, you know, overall, when you look at their uh, side-to-side statistics, Ivashka versus Federer, uh, Ivashka actually had more races than Federer. I was actually kind of surprised. He had eight aces to Federer's four. Again, all these stats are Googleable. Just type in Federer and type in, uh, you'll see him at the Hall Open. If you're typing Google, uh, type in Federer and then you'll see, you'll, you'll see Federer versus Ivashka at the Hall Open. Just press on it. I'm just pulling up the statistics for it uh, because it was this. the podcast was filmed on a Monday and they were playing on a Monday. So. And, you know, when you look at their stats, you know, just going at by their stats that I pulled up on Google, you know, going on their stats, I mean, there were eight aces to Federer's four. There, there are more, I mean, Federer had one double fall to Ivashka zero. Uh, receiving points one, Ivashka one, uh, had more receiving points one, 22 to 19. Uh, overall, like when you look on paper, it seems like Ivashka won, but... When you see Federer down in the sets, like when it's like 6-all or when he's up 6-5, that's when you see Federer at his highest form. And that's what makes the overall difference for Federer uh, when you see him in the thick of it, when you see him under pressure. The best tennis players are able to succeed under pressure. And that's what Federer showcased against Ivashka. You know, in fact, Roger Federer had more unforced errors than Ivashka. I mean, no, not, not only more unforced errors than Ivashka, but he actually had more unforced errors than, say, winners. But he was still able to beat him because of the fact that he had more experience than him, and he was able to succeed when the lights were shining the brightest. So Federer did have a pretty okay match, but overall, his experience and his durability to, to sustain himself within these sets made all the difference in the world. And as a result, you saw Federer single-handedly pull out a win against Ivashka. And overall, I, I thought it was a really good match uh, for uh, for Federer. Uh, again, he's playing at the Hall Open, so I don't know who he's playing as of this moment. Um, let me look it up for you on one for one second. Uh, yeah, he's playing against Alguer Aliasme. So, I mean, Alguer Aliasme actually had a pretty good match against uh, Rafa Nadal. Uh, I think it was in the French Open. It might have been the Italian Open uh, some time ago. So, he had a pretty good match against the King of Clay. So, I, I would expect this to be a pretty competitive match. And, um, again, you know, obviously, I don't want to get any predictions out of the way. Because I don't want to, you know, predict anything because, again, like, 
it's it's still pretty early into the match. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's love love either the first or second set. Um, but overall, you know, he is someone that you should cherish. You know, I think that's the key thing that we should all sort of understand about Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, or the Big Four is that we should appreciate them while we still have them because their influence on the game of tennis, on the sport of tennis, can never be replicated. So let's appreciate Roger Federer while we still have him uh, because we'll never see this play ever again. Like I, I truly doubt this next gen will ever hold a candle to Roger Federer. And I'm being really realistic when I say that. Again, like while I want the next gen to be as successful as Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal, you also have to be pragmatic about it. And they haven't really proven themselves to be that next gen that can actually pose a legitimate threat to the actual majors one of, say, a Novak Djokovic, who right now has 19, or a Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer, who both have 20. So again, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I want to support the next gen, but you also have to be realistic about their expectations. And their expectations um, are actually a little bit down compared to the big three. So uh, overall, nice win against um, Ivashka. Straight sets. Those later games and that first and second set made all the difference in the world. And uh, Federer seemed happy with the win. Uh, not as happy... And it wasn't the result that he wanted. I'm pretty sure he just wanted Washington to get a few games here and there. But overall, I mean, Federer seemed happy off the court. You know, he uh, he was hanging out with his family with all smiles. You know, so it's great to see Federer uh, in his happy place. But um, yeah, hopefully he's able to succeed against Ali Osme and you know pose a viable threat to to this tournament. You know. I mean, when you look at, you know, 2008 Wimbledon final against Nadal, I mean, they they say it's one of the better matches. They say it's the best match in tennis. I don't know about that. I mean, I would say, like, other matches actually are kind of better than that. Uh, 2015 Wimbledon final, 2019 Wimbledon final, actually, in my opinion, are better uh, than the match against uh, than Federer-Nadal. But it's still a good match regardless. But when you, when you look back at certain uh, Federer matches in Wimbledon, um, you sort of see how he's able to succeed. And how he's able to succeed is simply by being that much better against his opponent, you know. And um, I think when you talk about legacy, and this is sort of straying away from the topic, I'll get into the other matches that happened, not only at uh, the Queen's Club, uh, but also within the political societal realm outside of tennis, Uh but when you think about legacy, right, and this is only going to be like a few minutes where I talk about this, but when you think about legacy, I think Federer is really sort of sensitive whenever his legacy comes up because he knows Novak Djokovic is right behind him, and the GOAT discussion really affects Federer. Like, I think Federer is very sort of, like he really values that conversation more than he like pre- like pretends to come off as, or more than he likes to come off as. I think he's, I think he, this is my thing. I think Roger Federer will be within the ATP circuit for the foreseeable future, even though we may see less and less of him. I think he still wants to be in that conversation. He never wants to leave that 
doubt within the tennis world where Djokovic could be better than him. And while it may take a year or two years for him to fully retire, I think we're still going to see him pose a viable threat within these Grand Slams because he really values, when it's all said and done, the GOAT conversation. You know, I mean, he's a person that looked up to Michael Jordan as a kid. I mean, he said on sneaker shopping that he watched, you know, Sunday matches or Sunday games of Michael Jordan on his, you know, television set. So obviously he's privy to that conversation. He actually wants to be within that conversation, not only within the tennis world, but also within the sports world in general. So I do think that he values that conversation. He actually wants to, you know, have the ability to succeed against Joker because let me tell you, as a dude that value that likes Federer, that final set against Novak Djokovic, uh, there were certain times where I'm like, what is you doing, Federer? What are you doing, Federer? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, this hurts me. Like, this is hurting me right now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that he sort of values the GOAT conversation more than he pretends to not care about it, you know? So anyways, uh, let's get into Andy Murray versus Benoit Paire at the Queen's Club Championship. So if you guys don't know, there's also a second uh, grass uh, tournament that's happening outside of the Hall Open, which is the Queen's Club Championship. And Andy Murray has been notorious with the Queen's Club Championships. He's won five, I'm pretty sure, uh, since like 2008 to now. Uh, so he's pretty good on grass. Obviously, I think that's his best surface grass. Uh, and he's able to beat Benoit Paire, 6-3, 6-2. And overall, like, a win against Benoit Paire is nothing to be happy about, right? Like, like at all. I mean, the man is a notorious tinker. He's, he only goes in to collect a paycheck and then go out. It's notorious that he does it. Uh, but for Andy Murray, at this stage in his career, it means the world. Like, you have to understand that injuries have taken a toll on his career. And don't get me wrong, he has definitely choked in several instances, don't get me wrong. I mean, he definitely should have won an Australian Open title against Novak Djokovic, especially in those later years, 2015-2016. But overall, like, this win should mean the world for Andy Murray just because of the magnitude of his injuries and just how much it has plagued his career in terms of his success. Um, you know, but when you see him, and I'm, I'm just pulling up the statistics, uh, I mean, he had four races to, you know, Benoit Paire's two. Uh, he had, he converted three out of three break points against Benoit Paire. Um, he was able to succeed as well as points one fifty-five to Benoit Paire's 41. And overall, he had a really good win percentage on first serve, 75%. I mean, that's a pretty good. Three out of every four first serves won his way. So, I mean, that's a pretty good uh, statistic. He was able to hold most of his, if not all of his uh, games. Yeah, all of his games, actually. Uh, so it, it means a lot for Andy Murray. And I, I can tell, like, after his win, he was, like, very shooken up by it. I mean, he was very uh, sort of, what's the right word to say? He was very sort of happy, but in a very, like, tearful way, you know, so I think that's very good on Andy Murray's part, uh, in terms of, um, actually succeeding, uh, after that gruesome injury, and, uh, just how those injuries have plagued his, uh, career, and overall, so, overall, congrats to Andy Murray on the win, I mean, he's playing Matteo Ber- Berrettini next, so, I don't know how that match will go out, I'm pretty sure Matteo Berrettini will win, um, but he, he has had success against those serve and volley kind of individuals. I mean, he's 
he hasn't lost against John Isner. So, I mean, again, like, what, what you have to understand about Andy Murray when it comes to his play is that he is a counterpuncher. He is a person that's very defensive at the baseline, focused on his opponent's unforced errors, and actually want and actually has a desire for his opponent to go to, near the net so that he can hit a lob for a winner. Uh, and that's how he's able to succeed against those serve and volley type players. And I sort of view Matteo Berrettini in that same realm. Even though he's pretty good at the baseline, Matteo Berrettini has a very great, as a, a very good first serve that really pushes you back. Uh, but overall, he does like to go near the net. And I think that's some of the things that Andy Murray is very good at, you know, making sure that he's able to lob so that his opponent can't retrieve it. And not only that, but, you know, he when I watched that match against Benoit Paire, you know, not only was he great on the serve, but he had great footwork as well. He was moving from side to side. He was able to go up to the net when need be if he had to go back and uh, hit a great baseline ground stroke i mean he had a great awareness of the baseline knew where his opponent was going to hit before his opponent was going to hit the ball uh knew what side he could actually like penetrate so that he could actually hit a winner uh certain things like that really put him ahead of benoit pair and were able to you know sort of get him the win as a result of it um so overall i really thought the win was great uh hopefully we're able to see we're able to see more of Andy Murray at the Queen's Club. I mean, he's won five titles at the Queen's Club. So this is his home surface, and for good reason as well. So hopefully he's able to succeed uh, in in the up-and-coming matches at the Queen's Club. Uh, and more importantly, against this match against Berrettini. Because let me tell you, I mean, Matteo Berrettini is a dude that you should, like, watch out for. I mean, you've reached the quarterfinals of the French Open. You know, so he, he is a man that, like, you should think of you know i remember after the after the italian not the italian open but after the madrid open i was sort of questioning matteo berrettini i was a little bit dubious about him um but no he's the real deal i mean he is the real deal uh i was completely wrong on on my judgment of him um you know so but again like those again i I hate to stress this but those who succeed in clay more often than not do not succeed on grass it's just it is what it is. I mean, the best the best players that succeed on grass more often than not don't succeed on clay. And whole, and it's it sort of feels like Matteo Berrettini's style is more fit for hard court and more hit uh, more fit for clay. Uh, so again, you know, I think this is going to be a very competitive match. And they're playing today, right now. I'm pretty sure they're playing right now. Uh, so that's a. I hate to do these podcasts while tennis is in, in play, but you sort of have to. Uh, cause you know, it is what it is. You, it's all about content. So, um, let me look it up right now and see where he's playing. Oh, he's playing tomorrow. Actually, <laughs> he's playing on Thursday. I'm filming this on a Wednesday. That's great. Uh, so I'll definitely watch it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just love Andy Murray. You know, the man, the man inspired me to get into tennis. There would be no Ajay Tucker podcast without Andy Murray's 2013 Wimbledon win against Novak Djokovic. There really wouldn't. So. Uh, Andy Murray's a great person, so I'm just happy to see him perform. So, anyways, let's get into the realm outside of tennis. All right. So, if you guys didn't watch on Monday night, on uh, Stephen Colbert, which I don't begrudge you for, it's late night television. Who really watches late night television? I mean, it it stinks. But if you guys didn't watch, John Stewart went on Stephen Colbert. 
in front of his audience and said and had a few jokes where he essentially said is it kind of weird how the coronavirus came from the Wuhan novel sorry let me let me say it again uh John Stewart went on Stephen Colbert and said a few jokes about the coronavirus now that there's a audience there a full studio audience there and he said isn't it kind of weird how the coronavirus came from the wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab in a sort of joking way and you know his overall lably comments were awesome i really enjoyed it i thought they were awesome and it was entertaining and got people riled up and got liberals mad at him which it doesn't really take that much to get for liberals to get mad at you um, but overall, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was funny. It was entertaining. Uh, it was pretty cool that he did it in an audience that values and sort of deifies not only Anthony Fauci, but sort of has this dogmatic view on science. And for Jon Stewart to come out, a person that I value and respect above all, I'm, I'm happy that he got out the way he did because late night television shows actually uh, like incorporate his sort of style but they make it so disgusting i mean it, it's so like so partisan and so corporate friendly to the democratic party where there's no sort of nuance or actual jokes within the material but when you see him do it in front of an audience that deifies fauci it sort of begs the question like yes it's important to like trust in the science don't get me wrong like you should trust in science, but there's a difference between trusting in science and scientism, right? Like, it feels like since the coronavirus has happened, it feels like if you at least have questions about the coronavirus or just like questions about science and those in power, it's like, well, why don't you care about the science? Why don't you care about, you know, what they're saying? You know, the science is always real and true. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. Like, science we should believe but like shouldn't we test things out like shouldn't we question those in power and their judgments and john stewart and a sit down with colbert did it and he was very successful in doing it and that shows you the difference between a john stewart versus a stephen colbert right a stephen colbert is a person that is I, at one point i actually liked stephen colbert i mean he was a dude that was at the white house congressional correspondence dinner you know going after george bush and wmds and you know his show the colbert report was awesome you know him cosplaying as a republican making republican talking points and making it funny i mean that was amazing but now to see him where he is at this moment it sort of feels like he's sort of sold out to the dnc and it feels like each and every joke that he has has to be filtered through this and I hate to say this world, I hate to say this word, but it has to fit within this neoliberal agenda. It has to fit within this prerogative of advancing, you know, the Democratic Party, even if the Democratic Party disenfranchises its workers and its voters. You know, so when you have a John Stewart who was vocally critical of the Bush administration, but for good reason, you know, when it comes to their overall pro iraq war and pro mass surveillance state policies when you see a john stewart then go on colbert and say isn't it kind of weird how this virus came from a lab that was named after that very same virus in front of an audience that you know were sort of like tepid about you know their reaction but overall gave him a nice reaction because he is john stewart he is a god it sort of makes you realize that john stewart is awesome you know and his lab leak comments were amazing you know, so 
so I'm, I'm really happy that he went after uh, Stephen Colbert. Not, I wouldn't say Stephen Colbert, but went after liberals that, you know, sort of shy away from calling the coronavirus the China virus or, from, or you know, actually like placing blame on the Chinese Communist Party for what they've essentially done. You know, and, and and again, like I know some people like to blame the Mossad. You know, I, I don't know. It could be the Mossad. I, I don't know about these things. Again, I haven't really researched the topic. Uh, but overall, you know, I thought it was fun. It was enjoyable. And overall, hopefully, uh, as the coronavirus ends, I mean, lockdowns ended, we're back to normal. Everything's everything's opened. Uh, but hopefully now that things end, we as a country can now look at things through a world of nuance and have a clear-eyed view as to what things are actually transpiring and not be overly partisan with our issues and just like come together because now is the time where we should actually come together and just like focus on how to better this country and better ourselves as human beings as these next few days and next few months next few years go on so but yeah it's i do want to say like when I hear like conservatives like sort of go after China, like when it comes to like China started the coronavirus, when I see, when I hear them say it, there's they always implicitly say this could lead to a cold war, this could lead to economic sanctions, which I don't agree with. Right? Like at one point, I think in this podcast, I said I was for economic sanctions, and then I researched what economic sanctions were, and I'm like. No, this is crimes against humanity. Why the hell was I saying I was in support of this? You know, like this, you're t essentially blocking food, medicine, and whatnot from, you know, victimless or you know, to you know, to regular Chinese people. Like <laughs> these are like economic sanctions are crimes against humanity. Like why in the world was I was I in support of this? And I'm like, oh, like, I'm pretty sure anti-china sentiment is being fueled by the powers that be whatever they may be um who knows what they may be but i do feel like this anti-china sentiment is being fueled to start a cold war start some sort of economic battle for supremacy for for global supremacy essentially so yeah i mean uh, you have to be a little bit cautious when it comes to uh especially when it comes to more in particular, my criticism of China, like I have to be a little bit more cautious as to how I go about it because I know people may misinterpret and say, oh, he's feeling a cold war or a hot war or economic sanctions. I don't want any of that, like at all. Like what I want is just having the understanding that like this probably did come from China in a lab. It was probably man-made uh, and understand that we should view this in a more pragmatic way as opposed to just I don't know, sending troops into their seas. Like, that's crazy. Like, I was, I'm firmly a non-interventionist. So, like, when I see people, like, actually want a hot war with China, I'm like, I don't know. I, like, you, you can be for a hot war, but just know that if you want to send your fellow Americans overseas to die in a war that makes no sense, go for it. But you're, you would look like a kind of an asshole for doing it. So, again, like, that's sort of my opinion on this whole China thing. Like... Anyway, yeah, that's that's sort of my opinion. I'm a little bit getting off topic here. I enjoyed what uh, John Stewart had to say, and um, hopefully we're able to li live in a world that you know sort of views things in a more clear-eyed view and uh, has honest conversations about things that can subvert people's expectations because that's what John Stewart did. <laughs> so I'm happy with what he said.
All right, let's get into Kevin Hart's comments about cancel culture. So anyways, uh, Kevin Hart had an, had an interview with the British Sunday Times where he basically talked about cancel culture. And this is sort of an ex- excerpt that I got from the interview. Uh, he says, and I quote, it's not necessarily about cancel culture. He continued, it's backlash. It's about in- the intent behind what you say. There's an assumption it's always bad. And somehow we forget we forgot comedians are going for the laugh. You're not saying something to make people angry. That's not why I'm on stage. I'm trying to make you laugh, and I didn't. If I did not make you laugh, I failed. That's my consequence. All right. So as I've said before, I'm no fan of cancel culture, and again, this is just my overall views on Kevin Hart's comments on cancel culture. I'm not a big. I'm not a big fan of cancel culture. I think it's used to divide and conquer labor. It's used to essentially continue this rift between. Uh, rich and poor i don't think cancel culture is a good thing whatsoever um i've seen several other comedians be hired uh, as a work for hire and then get fired because they had a few tweets or comments that they made on podcast shane gillis for example uh that essentially led to their cancellation um and i agree with a bulk of what he has to say you know don't get me wrong cancel culture is a real thing you know it is a real thing and to act like it's not i think you're doing it you're doing people who work as part of the labor force a disservice i do think it's a real thing um i just wish it came from a better comedian like i it's again i have nothing against what kevin hart has to say but i just wish it came from a better comedian or at least a comedian that like i actually can watch and can tolerate right like like when it comes to cancel culture it's it's sort of weird because kevin hart has filled this niche where he's sort of like the figurehead the spokesperson for anything cancel culture related topics and ever since the oscars it's been like kevin hart has trying to monetize being anti-cancel culture and to be honest with you, like when I see people that are vehemently anti-cancel culture, that's just as corny as those who are pro-cancel culture. It's it's kind of weird, but they've essentially are in that same role where it's both of them are corny. Like like those who are pro or anti anti-cancel culture or vehemently anti-cancel culture that don't really value actual policies or substantive policies that can better and alleviate this, their situation. I think those individuals that focus on just being anti-cancel culture are just as corny and cringy as those that are pro-cancel culture. And when I see Kevin Hart always fix his mouth on cancel culture, but not really have the jokes to back it up, it's sort of cringy. You know, again, if Rogan said it, I have no problem with it. If Bill Burr said it, no problem with it. If Norm Macdonald said it, I have no problem with it because they have jokes that they can back up or actual substantive jokes that they can back up that can sort of understand that can make you understand that yeah you know they're going for it so it makes sense why they're anti-cancel culture with kevin hart it's like he's trying to like i feel like every special and this is why like it's hard for me to like be a kevin hart fan because it feels like every special he's just trying to sell you an image like that's like i'm a family man you know but i'm also anti-cancel culture it's like i'm i'm the dude that's behind jp morgan commercials it's it's like I don't understand it kind of like again i have nothing against kevin hart but i just feel like his jokes don't back up him being anti-cancel culture more often than not it's just way too self-deprecating and i just could never get into his specials so when i see him going after like the cancel culture mob it's like kevin you have no jokes that they can actually go after like 
with all due respect to you and your career because like you are successful like it just it's weird to me to see like a dude that like doesn't have the most cutting edge jokes or jokes that lead into black comedy to be all of a sudden be the individual going after cancel culture yes it may have affected him hosting the oscars and he went on a huge promotional run just promoting that um but overall it's like what jokes can they go after you for i mean you've been pretty pretty much an industry type dude which is fine but overall it's like it's kind of weird how you're the dude that is now the mascot for being anti-cancel culture like if it if it, it would if it was bill burr or Chappelle, for that matter go ahead you know i, I understand you know you're a dude that makes subversive jokes and you try and subvert people's expectations and i do that as well so when i see them go out and again i don't want to put my name with bill burr and Chappelle. like don't don't i, I didn't even I, i'm not going to insinuate that but when i see you know kevin hart you know go out like go after cancel culture it's like kevin you're golden like you're not the person that the cancel culture mobs going to go after like you've been in so many movies so many uh sort of industry related events it's like you're, you're fine man. like i don't know why you're the dude that people are, are trying to go after because it doesn't really seem like people are going to try are going to go after you you know so overall that's just my opinion on kevin hart have nothing against the message nothing against the message whatsoever i just wish i just wish the messenger actually had jokes that can back it up because i don't see kevin hart as of this moment having jokes that can even hold a candle to Bill Burr or to Norm MacDonald or to Shane Gillis or, you know, any any person uh, that is within that realm of comedy. So, yeah. Anyways, I think that's all the time I have. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe and click the bell icon for notifications down below. If you're watching on YouTube, just type on the type in the Ojo Tucker podcast. It's the first link. You'll you'll click on the link. Just click, you know, like, subscribe, and the bell icon for notifications. If you're watching, if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you rate and subscribe, review and subscribe, and you know, make sure you forward it to people that you enjoy. Um, guys, that's all the time I have. I'll talk on Tuesday about tennis and things related to our political and societal culture. But again, that's all the time I have. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'll see you guys on Tuesday. All right, guys. Peace. See y'all.